the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Lee Johnson. This week, we're taking a trip into the Uncanny Valley. (laughs) Before we get to that, however, let's get our drink orders and our rants or raves. So, Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I think I'm going to go back to my old standby, the Fireball and Diet Coke. An eminently respectable drink. <laughs> and today I am raving, and I'm raving about my dad. So this will be a few weeks after this by the time this airs, but this past weekend I traveled up to Clarksville, Tennessee to see my dad, who had just the day before turned 72, inducted into the inaugural Football Hall of Fame. And it was such a great experience. So my dad, Mike Johnson, was a legend in Tennessee football, still holds many of the records for passing touchdowns and yards in a season, etc. It's one of those things that, I mean, you can imagine what your parents were like when they were in high school, but you don't really know until you're sitting around people who were their friends and contemporaries. And the guy who was introducing the Hall of Famer said, there is no Hall of Fame that shouldn't have Mike Johnson in it. That's my dad. But while we were up there, because, you know, when are any of us going to be back there? That's where I was born, by the way. We visited our family graveyard, which has family members that go back before the Civil War. We visited my grandfather's now defunct ice plant. He was an ice man for most of his life. And obviously my grandparents and great grandparents and great, great grandparents home. And it was just a really great family weekend. But my dad, Mike Johnson, legend and hall of famer in Tennessee football. Yay, Mike Johnson. By the way, I can't leave this low hanging fruit. Did you take the last train to Clarksville? (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to like make it where nobody could say that, but no, we drove a Ford. Mm. So, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I am going to have a whiskey sour, and this is going to be a little bit like raving about white bread, (laughs) but this week I'm raving about Tom Waits. So recently I heard someone on a podcast talking about three albums in the middle of Tom Waits' career, and I thought to myself, wow, I haven't listened to Tom Waits in a long time. And so I went on like three days of listening to Tom Waits, and my God, is he, first of all, a fantastic songwriter and just an amazing musician. So I'm raving about Tom Waits. Nice. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? Well, I'm going to have a Baxter Brewing vacation land. A couple of weeks ago, I ventured to northern Maine. And since microbreweries are one of the few regional differences in increasingly standardized country, I tried some northern microbrews and had Baxter Brewing's vacation land. Or sorry, staycation land. I got that wrong. They should call us anyway, Baxter <laughs> <Yes>. Brewery. <laughs> I'm going to rant about college construction. And this rant comes in two levels. One, the immediate phenomenological level. My university finished a new dorm and a new student center. Good for that. And immediately started on a new performing arts center 
which means the pounding sounds of groundbreaking are outside my classroom mm. all day. That's the immediate petty side of it. The other side of this was brought up by the podcast American Vandal, which talks about the way in which public universities are kind of a Ponzi austerity scheme mm-hmm. where they use public funds to translate them over to private interests of construction and so mm-hmm. on. I mean, the case point in this is West Virginia University, which spent tons of money building tons of stuff and is now cutting all kinds of programs because of that. And so, I mean, it's interesting to think about the idea that a public university is in part a funnel that channels public funds through bonds and so on into construction contracts. And the thing about that is that it doesn't really affect in many ways the real mission of a university. That money never goes to faculty. It never goes to library acquisitions. It goes to fancy, fancy buildings. That, yeah, I mean, it's great to have a new dorm because cost of living in Portland is really expensive for students. They need a place to live. It's great to have a performing arts center, but, you know, we have budget issues as well. So, boo on that. So, Lee, we're talking about the Uncanny Valley. How are you going to lead us there? (laughs) Well, before we even get started, the first thing I want to say is that I have been putting this on our list of suggested topics for the last five seasons, and (laughs) I am so excited that we're finally talking about the Uncanny Valley. You know, hat tip to our friend John Protevi, who told me once a long time ago that relentless repetition is the way to, to win the race. But anyway... In 1970, a Japanese roboticist by the name of Masahiro Mori published a short essay in the journal Energy titled The Uncanny Valley, in which he attempted to explain humans' reactions to robots that looked and acted almost human. Mori hypothesized that when we encounter human-like technologies like robots, our feelings of affinity toward them tends to increase as their very similitude increases. So just to use a Star Wars example, we're more positively drawn to C-3PO than we are to R2-D2, because C-3PO looks more human. (laughs) However, the moment those robots or objects appear or behave in a too-human-like way, our attitude towards them immediately shifts to revulsion, So here you can think about the difference in your attitude towards C-3PO and your attitude towards the king from the Burger King commercials. Crossing that line between the human-like and the too-human-like, Maury hypothesized, is like stepping off a precipice. Things just get creepier and creepier. Now, in the 50 years since Maury first hypothesized the Uncanny Valley, as we all know, technology has advanced at light speed. Improvements in robotics, computer-generated imagery, augmented reality, and artificial intelligence technologies have made it increasingly difficult for us to readily perceive the difference between the human and the human-like. And all of this has sparked renewed interests in Maury's hypothesis. Cognitive scientists and neuroscientists engaged in experimental testing of the Uncanny Valley Psychoanalysts reopened their Freud and Jainch and Lacan books for reconsideration. Philosophers did too, but they added Schelling and Nietzsche and Guy Debord. Philosophers of technology were born, and film and literary critics congratulated each other on basically hitting the lottery. (laughs) Also important to note, Maury's original essay states that his was an incomplete theory. And he very explicitly calls for readers to, quote, build an accurate map of the Uncanny Valley. 
So today we're going to talk about the uncanny, the uncanny valley, whether or not our ability to distinguish between the human and the human-like is fading, and why that matters. So prepare to be creeped out. So let's start with the Lee Johnson question, which is, <laughs> what is the Uncanny Valley and can we define it? Yeah, so I'm going to try to explain how Maury explained the Uncanny Valley. And for listeners, we're going to put some charts on our show notes for this so you can actually see it. It's a little bit easier to visualize, but I'm going to try to do my best in words. So basically, Maury was trying to explain why it is that we feel more positive affinity towards robots. We'll just use robots, but obviously in this episode, we're going to talk about other technological objects and images. But why it is that we feel more positive affinity towards robots as they more closely approximate human appearance and movement. Again, going back to my C-3PO, R2-D2 example. But, sorry, go ahead. Which I don't think works on some level, for a Star Wars fan at least. C-3PO is annoying as hell. Everyone hates him. He's always being mocked by Han Solo. And R2-D2 is plucky and always there and reliable, even though he can't talk and looks like an automated Roomba sort of thing. (laughs) Okay, when I first thought about Lee's example, I thought, I really like R2-D2. But I think that what I like about R2-D2 are those human elements. Like you said, Jason, he's plucky. You know, my coffee machine is not plucky. Whenever R2-D2 is less machine-like and more human-like, then his appeal goes up. And I think part of the problem with 3PO is that he's often thought to be too machine-like. Like, he can't help himself but just do what his programming tells him to do. And so I think Lee's example holds if one pushes on it a little bit. But R2-D2 is more human-like in spirit than physical resemblance. When people say sad things near him, he makes a like a sad little noise. <laughs> he seems to interrelate to humans better than C-3PO, who just randomly spout off statistics when they're flying through an asteroid field and it's annoying, but it's his programming. He's a robot. So I think R2-D2 is more in spirit human and physically not, whereas C-3PO is more in spirit a robot when he looks more human. But okay. maybe this is all beside the point. <laughs> it's all beside the point. Let me try to offer this amended example, nerds. Uh, <laughs> what I'm going to say is you feel more affinity towards R2-D2 than you do towards a Roomba. Fair? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So where was I? (laughs) All right. So anyway, Maury's hypothesis is that we feel more affinity towards robots as they more closely approximate human movement and appearance, but only up to a certain point. And at a certain point, their verisimilitude, their likeness is too close to an actual human being, and then we find them repulsive. Now, if you could imagine a hill, actually two hills with a valley between them. So the hill on the left that we just went up was tracking the more and more positive affinity that we have to robots that more and more closely approximate human appearance and movement. Now, the top of that hill would be a robot that is 
very human-like, but not so human-like that we find it uncanny, Mm -hmm. creepy. And after that, there's just a precipice, right? We just fall off into the valley. It just gets creepier and creepier and creepier. So there are a lot of examples that over the years people have pointed to. The Polar Express was like one of the first examples that people Mm -hmm. pointed to that moviegoers found very creepy because the images in the Polar Express were too human-like. We're going to put some other examples in the show notes, but you basically get the point. Now, at the bottom of that valley, the very lowest point of that valley would be a robot that is indistinguishably human-like. We cannot distinguish between it and a human. Now, you might wonder, well, what's the other mountain? What's the mountain on the other side, right? And the mountain on the other side, at the top of that peak, is going to be an actual human being. So that's the basic hypothesis of Mori. There is this limit that we reach with the simulation of human likeness in robots, in technological objects, after which we find them uncanny and not, for lack of a better word, attractive. Mm-hmm. So maybe one good place to start, although Maury did not reference Freud or Jench or Lacan, there is a long history of the uncanny as a concept. So I'm not a psychoanalyst. <laughs> this is not my specialty. I mean, I do know it, but only in reference to my obsession with the idea of the uncanny valley. But <laughs> does anybody want to explain the uncanny? Well, in both psychoanalysis and other philosophers have picked this up, like Martin Heidegger, the 20th century German philosopher, also talks a lot about the uncanny. You know, basically for Freud and in psychoanalysis, it's a reaction we have when something is familiar to us and yet somehow strange and normally strange in ways that we can't quite identify. And so we're in this weird situation of being attracted and repulsed at the same time. And you could imagine psychological issues arise from this. Heidegger, for his part, draws on the etymology of the German word, which is unheimlich, which the heim there means home. And so unheimlich means not at homeness or unhomeliness or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so there again, you have something like right here in the heart of where you live, and yet it doesn't belong there. It has a weird sense of non-belonging. Yeah, when I ask my students to try to think of an uncanny experience, I often say, imagine walking into a perfect replica of your bedroom. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's not your bedroom because you've walked into it from a place that is not your home, but it is the most familiar thing to you. It's the most quite literally homely Heimlich thing to you. Right. And if you knew that it appeared as if it was home, but it wasn't home, that would give you this incredibly creepy feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think often about this example Kant gives about the difference between birds, song, so a bird actually singing, 
and a recording of a bird song. And so like if you saw this really pretty bird up in the tree and then all of a sudden you realized it was a machine or at least its recording was a machine, there's something destabilizing about that, something that throws you off your game and you're not sure because, again, you have this dual response. You're drawn to it and you're repulsed by it at the same time. Yeah, and I think it's that attraction aversion thing that Maury's getting at. Yeah. He's trying to explain the phenomenon of this relation that we have to objects that appear human-like that is different from the relation that we have to other humans. As he's explaining the climb up that first hill that I was talking about, he's saying, look, the more and more and more human-like a robot appears, the more positive affinity we're going to have to it, the more we're going to feel like we feel when we're around other human beings until it gets to that point where it's too human-like and we start to hone in on the difference between the appearance and the reality. Mm -hmm. Well, there comes a moment, I think, in which it's so human-like that we sort of approach it as a human, and therefore those moments of its non-humanness smack us in the face, and we're like, oh, now this is odd. Mm -hmm. This is not what a human should do. This is not what a human should be like. Yeah, and I also want to point out that although Maury was talking about robots in particular— there are a wide range of interactions with technologies that we could point to that give us this feeling today. My favorite example, which I feel like a lot of people have had, is when you're at the bar or wherever having a conversation with your friends about, I don't know, a particular pair of Nike shoes. And then on your way home, you check your phone and there's an ad for those shoes. Right? Like <laughs> that is, in a sense, an uncanny feeling. Right, right. Even though there's not an object there. Well, there's your phone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there it's more the matter of the way in which the universe seems to be matching your thoughts. It seems to be reflecting what you're thinking. If you think of something and then you see it or talk about something and then see it, it's about the externalization of something you just thought about, which is in its own way uncanny. Yeah, but I think it's not the universe. I think it's your phone. So right. maybe this goes back to the way that you were talking about R2-D2. It's not R2-D2's appearance that draws us to it and makes us think it's human-like. It's its behavior. And I think, obviously, my phone, it doesn't appear human-like, but it behaves in a human-like way. Right. And when it behaves in a too-human-like way, as if it were actually sitting there in the bar and listening to me, <laughs> you know, then I find that uncanny. But I think Freudian, obviously writing before smartphones, talks about the experience of when you start seeing the same number again and again. Yeah. Like, it's mm -hmm. your hotel room number, and then it shows up again. And I think part of the issue with the whole descriptive theory or, like, sketch theory that we're dealing with here is that we're not quite sure what it is we're talking about. And Freud, I think, you know, I didn't reread the entire essay, but I was reading over some of it, and I forgot how it's very much an essay. He's like, where does this thing come from? And he, yeah. he looks at the right. word a little bit. He talks about some different stories that are kind of uncanny, and he's really trying to think out this thing. And I think that the same thing is at stake in Maury's essay. It's trying to think about what this thing is. And there's no real definite explanation given, you know, mm -hmm. which allows for people to jump in and provide all sorts of explanations. I mean, as a theory, it's descriptively very accurate. You tell it to people, and people are like, oh, yeah, those things creep me out. Like, they get it. They get the uncanny valley. But where it comes from is harder to pin down. I remember seeing a tweet that it is very bad reasoning, but would make for a great 
science fiction story about how like maybe in our ancient evolutionary past there were human-like things that we had to be wary of Mm -hmm. and i mean that's probably not how things work but that's a great idea for a story you mean like when the aliens came and built the pyramids we had yes exactly (laughs) wary of the aliens (laughs) well i think you're hitting on something that maury was also trying to get at which is that this precipice where we fall off into the uncanny valley is also something that he hypothesized we wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. We would expect that the closer and closer and closer a robot's appearance and movements get to a human being, we would just keep feeling more and more and more attracted to it. Right. And that's weird that there's this point where that shifts to revulsion or right. creepiness or uncanniness. Yeah, he begins yesterday by talking about how used we are to thinking of linear and constant progression. Exactly. Right? Like yeah. the more you press down on the gas pedal, the faster the car goes. And in some sense, I feel like maybe the uncanniness has in part to do with this strange hitch. Linear progression in human resemblance hits this snag, this valley, And the uncanniness is why isn't the progression linear? Right, exactly. This time in thinking about the uncanny valley and the uncanniness of it, and especially Maury's emphasis on movement and human movement versus robotic movement and so on, I realized that, and I've talked about this before, Henri Bergson's theory of laughter Mm -hmm. sort of fits right in here because his basic theory is that we laugh when a human is appearing to be robotic. And there's something kind of uncanny about that as well. Mm -hmm. And that's why we laugh in such situations. And one of the powers of this theory, I mean, it has problems in other directions, but one of the powers is it explains things like nervous laughter. You know, we do have this kind of nervous laughter in the face of Tom Hanks and the Polar Express, for example. Because, I mean, there's no way around it. The dude just looks weird. Right, right. <laughs> you know, another example, early example of the Uncanny Valley is the movie Shrek. In the original test release, you know, when they were showing it to test audiences, children found it creepy and mm. cried. And part of that is because they had rendered Fiona too lifelike. And so mm. they never released that version of Shrek. They sent it back to the animators and they basically told the animators. You have to make Fiona more cartoony. And they made her more cartoony. And of course, like Shrek was a huge hit. I guess I want to ask this question. Do you think this is just an affective phenomenon? Or do you think there's something cognitive about it? Is that weird? Is cognitive and affective even opposites? But you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. whether it's just emotion or if there's also some sort of knowledge or attempt at knowledge going on in relation to it. My first inclination is to say, yes, it is both, because there's a way in which a certain categorization is overthrown. And I think it's important to point out that there's not an uncanny valley in relation to apples, right? So that the more realistic an apple becomes, at a certain moment, we slip off the precipice and we're (laughs) creeped out by that apple. It is specifically in relation to 
humans. And I think what's important about that is we have a certain categorization which functions in our understanding of the world and importantly, the social world, which goes back to, I think, a point Jason was making earlier about our need to belong to one another for survival and therefore our need to struggle against things that are not like us that could threaten us. And along comes this thing which... On the one hand, I'm like, oh, that's just like us. And then I'm like, wait a second. There's something a little off here. Uh I better be careful. I like the fruit example because, I mean, who hasn't seen a bowl of fake fruit? (laughs) Like nobody's creeped out about (laughs) it. Yeah. But I think you're getting at something really important there, Rick, which is that the human, you know, as a category, at least on a surface reading of Maury's hypothesis, is the Heimlich, is the most homely to us, the most familiar, the environment in which we feel the most positive affinity or whatever. And it's when the simulation too closely approximates that, that we kind of hone our senses in on the differences so that we can distinguish between the Heimlich and the Unheimlich. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was thinking about the robot in Big Hero 6 and just to use an example we've been using, Tom Hanks's character in the Polar Express. Mm. Big Hero 6 doesn't look anything at all like a human, and yet, I'm sorry, I fell in love with that thing. And if you've seen the movie and you did not fall in love with that thing, then there's something wrong with you. Mm. But Tom Hanks's character in Polar Express was never anything that I could fall in love with. And I think the reason is exactly what you were saying, Lee, that I never expected Big Hero 6 to be human. And therefore, the human qualities it has endear it to me. Whereas I expect Tom Hanks' character to be more human than it actually is because it's so human that all I could see are the ways in which it's not. You know, there's this roboticist named Hiroshi Ishiguro who started this project many years ago now that was called the Geminoid Project, where he basically was creating robot doppelgangers of actual human beings. And we'll put some pictures and videos of these Geminoids in the show notes. But one of the things that motivated Ishiguro to start this project was that he wanted to see if you could create a robot that could transmit... I don't think there's an accurate English translation of this, but the Japanese word is sansaikan. It means something like the feeling of a human presence. So he was creating these incredibly realistic robotic doppelgangers of real people to see if you could overcome the uncanny valley, more or less. And as they've gotten more and more realistic, and the current ones are almost indistinguishable from real human beings we see that it's still not quite there, right? Mm-hmm. And Ishiguro has been doing this for many years and he has his own agenda for his projects, but there have been even more recent robotic creations. Areka is one of them, and Sophia, these robots that are incredibly human-like, but still haven't quite overcome this uncanny problem. 
I think Sophia in particular is one of the most creepy things I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, you should check out Areka. Way yeah. creepier. Yeah. Well, the Geminoids are also quite creepy. Because as Maury points out, one of the problems is getting skin tone down. For some reason, we have an incredible problem getting the appropriate skin tone of various humans, and they all just are off a little bit. Well, according to roboticists and animators, like CGI animators, the hardest thing is the eyes. Because, Mm. first of all, the eyes are the most expressive part of our human faces, but also there's so much subtle muscle movement between Mm. the eyes and the eyebrows and the smiles and those kinds of things. And that's been what a lot of people have been recently working on. But speaking of CGI animation, I think that there's been more progress made towards more or less eliminating the uncanny valley in CGI than there has been in robotics. And I'm thinking in Mm. particular of the most recent Planet of the Apes movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember seeing those movies and thinking, this is not uncanny. Mm. I feel like I'm looking in this ape face and feeling the same way as I would feel if I looked at a human face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, also the way in which we can now just simply replicate humans. So take images of a younger Harrison Ford or even an actor who's no longer with us. They did it for Terry Garr in the later Star Wars. Carrie uh, Fisher. Carrie, oh, sorry, Carrie Garr. Oh, God. (laughs) They did it with Carrie Fisher in some of the more recent Star Wars installments where they just take old footage and they create a new scene out of it. And there's really not any uncanniness in that at all because it really just is a computer manipulation of an actual image of an actual human. Those still look uncanny to me. I mean, and maybe it's the fact that I know that the person in question is dead, that I know it can't Mm. be them, that the uncanniness kind of comes with the knowledge. And if I didn't know that, I would see it. But I've found all of the appearances of actors who have deceased in movies, or even actors who could no longer look the same. They did it in the recent Blade Runner, too. They always seem uncanny to me. Even the radical de-aging that's been done with like Samuel Jackson and Captain Marvel and The Irishman, it's not an uncanny valley. There's a certain kind of just awkwardness there of a mismatch between what the person looks like and how they move. You know, so I'm going back to the Bergsonian idea about a certain roboticness, a certain stiffness that just comes with age. And it's hard to see them as what they are presenting themselves to be. There's a disjunct around there, maybe not quite uncanny, but there's something that is very unnatural, I guess, to me. It's really interesting that this only applies to appearances and not, for example, to sounds. I'm just thinking of the most recent Top Gun movie where they recreated Val Kilmer's voice, mm-hmm. you know, from when he was younger. Val Kilmer has tragically since lost his voice. And so they recreated his voice with AI. And I don't think anybody experienced the uncanny when watching the Top Gun film. But yeah, I agree with you, Jason, that when images are manipulated, 
the uncanny creeps in. And, you know, there's this old 30 Rock sketch, which was a great television show written by Tina Fey, where Tracy Jordan explains the uncanny valley in relation to porn. And he's like, look, you know, you're never going to be able to perfectly immerse yourself in digitally animated porn because of the uncanny valley. Because what the uncanny valley explains is that, again, as something appears more and more like the thing that it is, our brains are trained to find the differences. And so, you know, we're never totally going to be convinced by a simulation. Mm. See, again, porn and war, the two great <laughs> drivers of technology. Porn is going to push us out of the uncanny valley. <laughs> Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand, synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance, you can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at www.hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. Lee, I feel a little awkward having this conversation because, as you said at the beginning, you've been obsessed with the Uncanny <laughs> Valley for quite some time. You know, you've written on your blog a number of things about this. So one thing I was wondering is, have you started charting so that you could make a map of the Uncanny Valley? Yes, I have. <laughs> And maybe it's important to just point out, as I said at the top of the episode, that when Maury published the original 1970 essay, The Uncanny Valley, he very explicitly said in that, that this is a hypothesis, this is incomplete. And at the end, he called for someone else to provide a more accurate map of the Uncanny Valley. So yes, I was obsessed and like am still a little bit obsessed with the Uncanny Valley, but there was a period in the last 10 years where I was really working on exactly that call by Maury. Let me tell you what motivated it, which I mean may not be intuitive to everyone else, but at least was to me when I very first came to understand Maury's hypothesis. My question was, why is it a valley? Like, why isn't it just a precipice? Mm -hmm. Again, imagine there are these two hills with a valley in between. You go up the first hill and your affinity towards robots is increasing and increasing as they closely approximate human movement and appearance up until the point, which is the peak of that right. mountain, after which they just become uncanny. So you sort of fall off into it. Now, my question was, why doesn't that just go forever, you know, like as they mm -hmm. more and more and more closely approximate human beings, they just get creepier and creepier and creepier. The uncanny abyss. Yeah, the uncanny <laughs> abyss, right? Yeah. So my first question was, why is it a valley? 
And if it is a valley, how do you get back up it, right? Like, how do you explain mm-hmm. the trek back up to the next mountain, which starts with a real healthy human being? Mm-hmm. So over time, I slowly worked out what, in a completely humble way, I am calling the Johnson addendum <laughs> to the Uncanny Valley, which I think explains both of these things. Okay, so here's basically my addendum. Again, I don't have receipts, but I do have charts, and we'll put them in the show notes. I think what Maury missed was that there needs to be another line that would bisect the center of the bottom of the Uncanny Valley. So to divide the left side of the valley and the left hill from the right side of the valley and the right hill. So the very bottom point of the Uncanny Valley would be a perfect technological simulation of a human being, which you would take as a human being. You would not have an experience of uncanniness in a perfect simulation. You would have an experience of the real. Okay. Right. So on the left side of that dot would be the absolute closest approximation of a perfect simulation. And on the right side of that dot, you would have the real thing. So the downward slope, after you step off the precipice into the uncanny, on my view, is about an aversion to deception. So it divides the simulation from the real. And on the upward slope of the valley, what would explain that is an aversion to mortality and morbidity, basically. So you draw a dividing line between the bottom of the uncanny valley valley And you make two distinctions. On the one hand, you have the simulation as opposed to the real. And on the other hand, you have the non-human as opposed to the human. So it's kind of an epistemological division and also an ontological division. On the downward slope, as things get creepier and creepier, what we find is that we're more and more averse to them because... And I don't like to use the language of hardwiring, but it seems to be hardwired in our brain to avoid being deceived, to make a distinction between the like and the is. And then on the other side, I mean, this is a little bit more delicate to talk about, but the more morbid a human body is, the more we feel revulsed to it. So, for example, we feel a kind of uncanniness when we encounter corpses, Like, Mm -hmm. we don't relate to a corpse in the same way that we relate to a human being. We don't relate to a severely disfigured or mangled human body in the same way that we relate to a fully healthy human being. I mean, it just is a documented fact of human psychology. So that's what Maury missed, is that he couldn't explain why the valley is a valley. Mm -hmm. So I have so many questions about this, (laughs) because it seems as if one of the reasons why for Maury it's a valley is because he seems to think there is a possibility that robotics and other technologies could come far enough that we wouldn't even be angry at a deception because there is no deception. Mm -hmm. This thing appears to me to be a real human, and therefore I wouldn't experience the uncanny valley. And so there could be a progression in technology that allows robotics to bottom out and start climbing that right-hand hill. And at a certain point, it would cross with a corpse and up and up and up until it looks just like an active human being. 
I think the other part of this and your example, the example of the corpse is something that from the first time I read Maury's essay sort of stuck in my craw. There's a cultural component to this as well. For example, there was a time not that long ago where corpses were not uncanny. People would live with them for days in their Mm. house and have dinner with them. And there was a more at-homeness of corpses. And now for a lot of Western so-called developed societies, since death has been industrialized and commercialized, corpses now become more uncanny than they used to. That leads me to believe that there could be a cultural component such that Mm. we might actually no longer find Tom Hanks's character (laughs) in Polar Express to be creepy at all. Okay, so there's two different things there. I want to address them separately. On the first point, I don't think that Maury actually believed that technology would ever be able to produce a perfect replica. I mean, he was writing this in 1970. And I think probably most people today don't think that technology can produce a perfect replica. But even if it could, and even if Maury believed that, that would not eliminate the valley. That would just make the perfect replica the bottom of the valley. It would still be the case that we would feel attracted to these simulations up until a certain point. Then we would find them creepy. That's when we go down the valley. And then at a certain point, they would appear human. We would not be able to distinguish between the simulation and the real, and we would take them as real. So we would no longer feel uncanniness. Right. But that's at the peak of the right-hand mountain. Right, that's no, the no, 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 no. The, the peak of the right-hand mountain is a real human being. That's what I'm trying to say is that there's two oh. divisions being made here. One is an epistemological division. Can I tell the simulation from the real? The other is an ontological division, an actual human being from a non-human being. For Maury, at the peak of the left valley is the robot that appears human-like, but not so human-like that I find it uncanny. At the peak of the right valley, and he was very clear about this, is what he calls a healthy human being. And I want to be very careful about like ableist language here. Sure. But he is talking about a healthy human being. And I think on the downslope of that right mountain into the valley, he's going to put mangled human being, you know, he's going to put mm-hmm. all of these kinds of categories of morbidity and eventually mortality so that the corpse is going to be at the bottom. And that leads to your second point, which is that, yes, of course, there have been moments in cultural development where people have been more or less familiar with the corpse. But I don't think that there's ever been in any culture a moment at which people related to the corpse in the exact same way that they related to a human being. What Maury calls a healthy human being, a live, healthy human being. So in the same way that as on the, again, sorry, I'm sorry to keep saying left and right listeners, please pull up the chart as you're listening to us. <laughs> but like, but on the left side of the mountain, it's as both the appearance and the movements of a robot become more human-like that we feel more affinity to it. Now imagine on the right side, as we go down from a healthy human being down the valley, the same thing is going to happen. It's going to be a kind of degradation or deterioration of the likeness of not only a human appearance, but also a human movement. What is the most like a human but doesn't move? 
a corpse. What moves but is less like a healthy human being than others? Someone who's had injuries or various effects of morbidity. So Mm -hmm. I think that the basic rubric still holds. It just is missing this explanation of why the valley is a valley. I feel like in talking about that, and you mentioned no one treats a corpse the same way they treat a human being, you've kind of added another component. And that's a component of ethical obligation. It's interesting to think about that because I think no one treats a corpse like a human being, but they don't treat a corpse just like a thing. Right, right? exactly. You yeah. don't desecrate them. Do so is to be morally judged. But I also think that that interesting aspect in thinking about the uncanny valley in general, and that is to what extent do our ideas about how we should interact with others affect the sort of uncanniness? I'm thinking about a long, long time ago, I used to work at a coffee shop, and we had a regular customer who was a victim of severe burns. Mm-hmm. And I tried so hard, you know, whenever I saw her approach the counter, I would think to myself, I'm going to look her in the face. I'm going to treat this person like everyone else who comes in here. You know, I'm not going to stare and I'm not going to avert my eyes. And you could say there was a certain uncanniness to a disfigured face, but there was this added component, unlike some of the things we've talked about, where I don't care what Tom Hanks thinks about how I don't want to watch Polar Express. But I did in this situation, because we were sharing the same space, I did want to put aside that uncanniness. Now it becomes like a 3D kind of graph, like add another axis of moral respect or treatment. But that is an aspect. And earlier when I was preparing for this, I was thinking about animals. Do animals ever occupy the uncanny valley? And I have a very vivid memory of as a kid going to the Cleveland Zoo and the gorillas were watching TV. Mm. I'm not sure if it seemed uncanny to me, but it definitely seemed like if they're watching TV, they shouldn't be in a cage. Mm-hmm. You know, it mm. definitely was a kind of resemblance that questioned the whole enterprise of the animal-human distinction for me. First, I completely agree with you that there is an ethical element to this. Not to toot my own horn, but that is still addressed by the Johnson (laughs) addendum. So when you're, for example, encountering the person with severe burn scars, this is not an epistemological question. You don't have this question like, is this a human or is this not a human? Mm -hmm. You already know that it's a human. And because it's on that right side of this dividing line that I've tried to put through the bottom of the uncanny Valley, that whole side includes ethical obligations that the left side of that line do not include. Mm -hmm. So the human side of the dividing line includes ethical obligations that the non-human side of the dividing line does not include. I think the problem is when we get to the bottom of the valley, so if we make the bottom of the valley a point, the point would be a perfect simulation of a human being, which we literally cannot decide if it's real or a simulation, and we cannot decide if it's human or non-human. Just to the left of that point would be the closest possible simulation of a human being. And on the right side of that point, I'm saying would be a corpse. We could maybe in different cultural contexts think of the most degraded version of what we think a human being is. Mm -hmm. But still, the question is both a knowing question cannot tell the difference, and a ethical question, what difference does it make? And the ethical dimension of that question is, is it human or is it not human? And I think this gets back to Maury's unstated assumption that what is homeliest to us is 
the concept of humanity, mm-hmm. like even more so than the concept of the real. Mm. Yes. Here, I agree with Maury. But, you know, I've been thinking, Lee, that this is a robotic version of, I think, a longstanding disagreement we've had, namely whether truth as such is itself a virtue or a value. I'm not convinced of that, and you are. And so for you, it's very important whether this in reality is actually a human, whether or not anyone could tell that. There's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation in which there is a woman. I forget how the whole thing gets started, but she and her husband are all alone on a planet and they need some help. So the crew gets to know both of them and Data and this woman, she plays the cello, I believe, could be the viola. And they decide (laughs) to do a duet with Data playing the violin. So they rehearse and then they perform it. It's at that moment that Data realizes she's an android and no one else does because only the android was able to tell that she played the piece exactly the same twice without any variation at all. And no human could tell this. One of the things I like about this episode is that then the dilemma is, do they tell her? Because she doesn't even know she's an android. Mm. The decision they all come to is the one her husband made early on. They're not going to tell her. Eventually, they allow her to die a quote-unquote natural death, and that solves the problem. But I find this thought experiment really interesting. Does it really matter at that point whether or not she is actually a human? Now, the ethical side might be, well, it would be okay to turn a robot off, but it would be unethical to kill a human. But we've had that discussion in relation to the ethics of artificial intelligence, whether that it's a human is the end of our ethical obligations. And so I think you're right that this does bring to the fore Maury's assumption that the most homely, the most heimlich, is the human as such, independent of all other things. Yet, even by the end of the essay, he can't get away from the fact that this is a feeling we have in certain situations, which opens the possibility that we would no longer have that feeling in exactly the same situations. Mm -hmm. That is really such a great example, Rick. And if I could just in my own defense, go back to something you said earlier. So I am committed to the truth as good, but I'm not committed to the idea that the truth is immutable and therefore to know the difference between the truth and its simulation is the even greater good. Mm. So in my view, and I, I don't think I've been inconsistent about this in the many years that we've been podcasting, I think the human is a socially constructed idea. I do think it's probably the most homely truth to us. It's the most familiar truth to us. Do I think it could change? Absolutely. I think it could change. But as it changes, the ability to distinguish between human and inhuman is going to be just as important to us until that category itself is evacuated of content, which Mm -hmm. I don't think we're there yet. No. So yeah, I think that you're right. The way that we connect, the ability to tell the difference between a simulation and the real, the ability to tell the difference between the non-human and the human and the ethical implications of that are getting complicated. I mean, you're talking about a sci-fi example, but this is what sci-fi is for. 
is to say, look, in the future, this is going to get complicated. And, you know, listeners, the future is now. It's complicated. <laughs> mm-hmm. Way to put a downer on things, Lee. <laughs> but thinking about the Star Trek example also made me think, I mean, given that we're also talking about a concept that comes from a certain aesthetics and comes with all these science fiction examples to illustrate it, it's interesting to think that in science fiction, film, and TV, one way to jump to the other mountain of the uncanny valley is to do what star trek the next generation did you have your android played by a human being yeah you paint his skin a different color and i think he wears some kind of contacts and make his eyes look different and you know my reaction to data on the show is definitely not the sort of tom hanks and polar express thing you (laughs) treat him kind of like a human although that creates this other thing i'm not sure if it's uncanny but in the moments in the tv show when they actually like you know take apart his brain or something and show the little light circuit board underneath it doesn't look uncanny it just looks cheesy you know no. because when you're watching that show you accept him as human yeah right i mean i think that the resemblance is close enough it doesn't make a difference you know i thought you're going to bring up the episode the measure of man where like yeah. uh, there's a whole debate about whether or not he's a human or a machine and i think the reason that episode works is that by that point, it's only in like the second season, by that point, fans of the show have already accepted him as a character and as some sense a human, more or less, or the distinction doesn't make... I mean, I don't say it doesn't make a difference because a lot of the show is all about that kind of drama, but he's definitely on the point beyond the uncanny valley, it seems to me, as a mm-hmm. character. The second point, and maybe the more important point is, if he's a machine, therefore he can be property, right? which raises some of the ethical questions we've talked about in relation to robots, in relation to sex robots in relation to artificial intelligence and in many other ways. Can I just throw in here like one more ethical problem, which I'm borrowing from Descartes. So Rick, buckle up. (laughs) That was last season. (laughs) (laughs) But part of the thing about at least Maury's initial hypothesis is that it is a lot about deception. Basically how he explains the uncanny, the shift from attraction to the revulsion is this moment when we think we might be being deceived. And Mm -hmm. of course, Descartes has this great example of the evil genius. What if everything is a deception and what are the moral and actually metaphysical implications of that? And I think that we in philosophy, I believe, have for the most part for the last 300 years assumed that it's hardwired in the human brain to be averse to being deceived. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we've done enough analysis of the way that what we perceive as deception has changed. Right. We've been talking about the uncanny valley appropriately, because this is what the original meaning is, of something non-human, a machine, becoming closer and closer to the human. And then there comes a certain point where it becomes too close and then it falls down into the uncanny valley. Okay, what about the reverse? What about something that appears to be a machine and then all of a sudden you find out, oh, there's actually a human inside? Mm. There, we're not angry at that deception. It doesn't have the same effect on us when we come to realize that the machine is actually a human. And this, I think, goes to the data example, Jason, that we're not upset that a human is playing a machine where we would probably be upset, and I think rightfully so, if it turns out that the machine was doing the work of a human. Yeah, that's interesting. So we can't move in the other direction, and it's 
still be uncanny. Glasses and challenging ideas is kind of our thing here at Hotel Bar Sessions, but both the drinks and the server space cost money. You can help keep this podcast independent and ad-free by signing up to be a Hotel Bar Sessions patron at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. For less than the cost of a mild night of drinking per month, You'll be helping to defray the many costs of our podcast and saving us from having to start our own cult. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several of them, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support this podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. As always, we appreciate your listening and especially your helping us to keep pouring wisdom one conversation at a time. So as we've discussed ad nauseum at this point, I was obsessed with the Uncanny Valley for at least a solid decade uninterrupted. (laughs) My interest began to wane when I began to be convinced that it might be possible that the younger generations, so young millennials and Gen Z, may not actually experience the uncanny valley. Another way to say that is that technology has advanced so much that the investment in the distinction between the real and the simulation or the distinction between the human and the non-human is starting to fade for younger generations. I mentioned earlier my reckoning with the uncanny when I watched the most recent Planet of the Apes movies Mm -hmm. where I thought I saw something incredibly human-like that I did not experience as uncanny. Examples like that have only proliferated, in my experience anyway, in the last five or six years. So I wonder, is it possible that we're erasing these differences such that talking about the uncanny valley just doesn't make sense anymore? There are two ways in which the differences can be erased. I mean, you mentioned that the technology has gotten better. I also wonder if people have gotten acclimated to seeing so many simulated human beings that eventually you just kind of get over it. Like it doesn't matter? It seems like a big preoccupation to us who are used to there being a gap. We could tell when something was human and something was fake. But when you spend more time in areas where that distinction doesn't seem to matter you begin to lose interest in it, and it might be a generational byproduct in some sense. I mean, the other thing I think about, and we haven't talked enough about, is the kind of foothills of the Uncanny Valley. (laughs) I mean, I think the big question is, why are we so quick to attribute some kind of human-like characteristics to things? You know, I think about, what's that word for? There's a word for seeing human faces and things. Like in toast? Yeah, like in your toast, like in a plug. (laughs) Like you put two dots in a line next to each other and you got a face, right? Yeah. Or you act in a certain kind of way, just enough, you know, like you watch your Roomba bounce against something for a while and you imagine it getting frustrated. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to kind of... Anthropomorphize is the word you're looking for. Yes. (laughs) I don't think it's anthro. That's the reason I didn't say it. I also think that part of the foothills is just seeing some agency or vitality. It might not necessarily be human, but Mm -hmm. just seeing something having some intentions of its own or subjectivity of its own. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think that 
we've really expanded the augmentation of humanity that we're willing to allow in our perceptions. Just to use a really basic example, several years ago, I mean, I don't know how long it was, five, eight years ago, when Snapchat filters first came out, you know, like the dog face or the Mm -hmm. kitten face or things like that, and how weird it seemed at first, like literally uncanny. And now there's no reaction to it at all when there's an effect on Mm -hmm. Instagram or TikTok or whatever. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's just part of what people do. There's literally no aversion to it. It's just expanded understanding of what augmented human appearance and performance is in the 21st Mm -hmm. century. I feel about this similar to the ways in which I feel about other technologies and what they bring about that lead others, especially many of my colleagues, to constantly complain about the kids these days. (laughs) The kind of literate culture we have in the European and North American world is really shortly. I mean, it really begins with Gutenberg. And That's not all that long ago in the whole grand scheme of things. And there was a different way of relating to the world before, and there will be a different way of relating to the world again. And Lee, I think what you're pointing out is that we now have the first generations coming of age who are completely digital from the beginning to the end of their lives. Yeah, That's not me. You know, I can remember very clearly an era before computers, or I mean, at least the ubiquity of computers. You know, my first year of college, I was typing my papers on a typewriter. So I think when you're in a completely digital culture, the human might not be the absolute center of your moral universe, and in-person encounters might not be the absolute definition of your social world. I think people are more used to avatars than I am. I find them weird. And whenever I have the choice to make one, I don't. But in a completely digital culture, the uncanny valley or what it's based on, namely the decision human or not, is a completely different kind of decision that if it has to be made, is made on completely different criteria. And can I just say that, Jason, I think what you were talking about is called pareidolia, mm-hmm, right. which is the propensity to see human faces like the mm. man in the moon and, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus on a, on a piece of toast. <laughs> I agree with you. I like the way that you said that, Rick, that the human is not the center of all things anymore for the younger generations. And I think a lot of that has to do with technology. A lot of that has to do with technology. But I also think it has to do with real shifts in moral and social and political sensibilities. I mean, for a generation that is concerned with the climate, that is concerned with non-human animals, that is concerned with social and political structures as opposed to individuals, we shouldn't be surprised that the human is not the measure of all things. And even the distinction between the simulation of a human and a real human is not the measure of all things. Again, this leads me to believe that Pache Mori, this is not hardwired into our brains, that the uncanny valley was like a blip in the historical development of consciousness to kind of borrow from Hegel that we had this problem for a while where it was very important to distinguish between 
the simulated and the real and the human and the non-human. And as that becomes less important, we're going to have to completely refigure our moral and political sensibilities. So contrary to what you might think, we are not simulations of human beings. (laughs) (laughs) Or are we? Or maybe it doesn't matter because even simulations would need money to fund their server space (laughs) and so on. So whether we're human or not, we need money to keep functioning, whether we use that money to buy food and other things to stay alive. But real money, not (laughs) fake money. simulated money. (laughs) So you can keep us functioning, keep wondering if we are human or machines by supporting us on Patreon patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions and in the meantime the bartender has reminded us that she very much is a real living person (laughs) and is ready to go home and so we got to get out of here i'm gonna be really sad when i can no longer tell the difference between the heimlich and the unheimlich in a bar i may just want to say that for the record (laughs) well whether this is a simulation or not i'm calling an uber thanks rick bye (laughs) 